Uh, well, I um, want to take a break this morning from Hebrews, and I want to turn our attention to Luke this morning. And in this passage here, I was thinking about uh, what kind of a message would you deliver for homecoming of a church or for an anniversary of a church? And I thought, you know, homecomings or, or anniversaries, they're about celebrating how God has been faithful in the past and then looking forward at the same time to how we hope we will be able to fulfill the Great Commission. I like one of the quotes that, you know, I was interviewing Miss Pat and I told her, I said, you know, 78 years from now, somebody might dig up this interview that I did with you and what would you hope would happen if they read this? Uh, what would you hope Grace Baptist would be like in another 78 years? And she said, I would hope that we would continue to reach out to the people and continue to be a church in the community that wants people to know Christ and that we want to reach out to people in our community. And I think that's a pretty good, I think it's a pretty good hope, Miss Pat. And, and on that, I, I want to say this this morning. Let me just kind of build off of that a little bit and, and look at Luke chapter 12 this morning. Uh, Jesus is going to give us here in what may be considered a somewhat lengthy section uh, things that churches must value if they're not just going to thrive in the future, but or survive in the future, but so that they will thrive in the future. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, please take them at this time and turn with me for, to Luke chapter 12. And um, we're going to be looking here at this passage. This is just sort of a reminder here this morning uh, to place us where we should be. We're looking at a section here in the life of Jesus, and Luke here is beloved by the Lord, and he is writing the account of the life of Christ. His purpose is to tell Theophilus that he can know who Jesus is with certainty. And, um, and so he's telling us these things, and as we look at them, we're reminded here that there's a strategy an investment, right? Luke is telling us here we need to invest in Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to make the right demands to do that on ourselves and follow Him uh, into greater and greater faithfulness. And so what we're going to see here in this particular passage, Jesus, the background here is He has set His face towards Jerusalem. He is making His way there towards the cross. He will face the cross eventually in chapter 20. Three, he has been participating in what would be considered a crisis that Jesus himself is almost, uh, I don't know if instigating is the right word, but not backing away from continual confrontations with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus here is not looking back, but marching forward here, not fearing man or the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day, but instead fearing God, his Father. And the point here Luke is making is important to us today because the points that are here and the investments that are here that are in this passage are ones that we can carry with us for the next 78 years and hopefully beyond here at Grace Baptist Church. So uh, let's look at the at valuing or treasuring the right things this morning. Here's what Luke says in Luke 12 verses 1 through 21. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who has, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold, sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Then, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before man, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have no more to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. May God have blessing to the reading of His holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. And I pray He writes this truth on our hearts today. As I said a moment ago, this is a rich text this morning that we're looking at. This is a text where we're seeing here, uh, He's instructing the disciples with a purpose of the things that really matter in the faith and in the life. Really, things that they should be treasuring in their heart on a daily basis. We have to, uh, we see in this passage here, Jesus is showing us four attitudes and actions that are symptoms of wrong values uh, whenever they are pointing to the condition of our soul. Uh, and it's going to show itself in wrong actions. When there are wrong values in a church or in an individual person's life, it will demonstrate itself. So, you know, when you're thinking about sick churches or you're thinking about sick bodies, if, this, if you're not healthy at a cellular level, the smallest unit there is, the body itself will not be healthy overall. In a similar fashion this morning, if we at an individual level have the wrong values, then it will translate into an unhealthy church over time. And so let's look at these this morning and let's see these as they emerge in the text. Uh, let's back up here for just a minute to the very beginning. 
First verse here, we see here the crowds are gathered around them, trampling one another. I don't know if you've ever been in a massive crowd before. Uh, crowds tend to sort of have a will of their own. Uh, you know, I've gone to University of Tennessee football games and there's big crowds there, but few things compare to Walmart on Black Friday. Have you ever been to Walmart on Black Friday? Uh, you cannot get to the aisle you want to get to. You will move with the herd, and wherever the herd decides you will move is where you will go. I imagine in a similar fashion here, the people here are, are moving sort of in unison. But we see here something very interesting. He began to say to his disciples first. Now, um, in Greek, we don't have the punctuation in the original text like we do now. So there's been some debate about whether it should be the disciples comma first quotation marks or it should be disciples first comma quotation marks uh, and how much that affects the meaning, I'm not really sure. I think that it could be a touch of both in this. Uh, but I think that one thing we need to see clearly here is Jesus is honing in on the 12, even though there is a massive crowd around, which brings up a point that's interesting here. Jesus Christ loves everyone perfectly, doesn't he? That would, I mean, I'll try that again. Jesus Christ loves everyone perfectly, doesn't he? Yes. Does Jesus have favorites? But he seems to be honing in here. I think there's a biblical reality here. While Jesus may not have particular favorites, I would argue that Jesus has intimates. Those people that are drawing close to Jesus Christ who have a greater awareness of their own personal sin, he draws near to, right? Uh, we see this in the life of Mary. When Mary wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, she had a high awareness of her own personal sin and the forgiveness that he gave her. It's not possible to Jesus love the disciples more perfectly than he loved the crowd. He loved them all perfectly, but he certainly was more intimate with the disciples than he was the larger crowd. And even within the disciples, greater intimacy still with three in sort of an inner circle. And so here he is telling them and he is instructing them here in something very important. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, as I said before, we have already... Uh, been in, in, in confrontation in this book with the Pharisees several times, and it seems to be keep getting ratcheted up. The Pharisees are keeping a list and listening well when Jesus speaks, and he does not shy away from speaking against what they're doing. You would think of all the big no-no sins, if he is instructing who will eventually be the future leaders of the church, that he would start with the, you know, don't smoke, don't, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do, or don't have adultery, don't have any kind of sexual sin, but that's not where he begins, is it? The first thing right out of the bat that he warns those early disciples about is having the leaven of the Pharisees, and he goes on and makes the comment and says, it's hypocrisy. Now, what is hypocrisy? In Greek, it literally means to speak from behind a mask. It is their word that they use for acting. And those of you who are bakers in here, let me ask you this. I have a theory that there are two types of people in the kitchen. There are cooks and there are bakers. The difference is this. Cooks can grab a little bit of that and a little bit of this with their hands measuring nothing, throw it together, and it tastes wonderful. Bakers must have it precise. Like they've got the cup and they cut the top off with the butter knife. You know what I'm talking about? It is, it is down to the fraction, right? And we got both in this church, which is why if the preaching's no good today, at least the meal will be here in a little while, right? 
But my bakers in here, those of you who bake on a regular basis, how much leaven does it take to leaven a whole batch that you're working with? Does it take very much? Now, bakers, let me ask you this. Once you've put the leaven in the bread, can you take it out? No, you cannot, can you? So one of the first things we're seeing here is you must be on guard against hypocrisy at a personal level. You must be on guard here at a, and once you are infected with it, it is difficult to remove, right? Maybe impossible in certain situations and cases. He goes on to clarify here. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Um, Jesus here is telling us that we, if we are thinking that if we are whispering in back corners and in, and in private conversations and in back rooms and nobody is hearing what we're saying and we think that is enough for us, we are in a sad state spiritually. Don't you know that everything that you say and do will be proclaimed from the rooftop on the day of judgment? There will be nothing hidden from everyone? If you... <laughs> If you're settling for the fact that other people just don't know this and that's good enough for you, you are settling for the wrong thing. Instead, you need to, instead of valuing here uh, hypocrisy and living with this yeast of the Pharisees, we need to be people of integrity. Uh, Ashland Avenue in Lexington, Kentucky is considered one of, a, I guess, a flagship uh, Baptist church in that state. And there was a pastor that was there for uh, many years, Brother Range, who would tell this illustration when he was a pastor in Virginia. He said one Saturday night when he was in his study, he got a phone call from from someone in the community that they had seen one of his deacons taking a, a known prostitute in Lexington out or in, in Virginia there out in, of the city and into, uh, into a way back country road. So Brother Range got up in the pulpit the next morning and told the church, he said, I know there is someone in this church, a deacon nonetheless, who has been seen taking a known prostitute out into the country. And I'm going to call you to come down and repent this morning. And he said that morning, two deacons walked out the back door of the church. It cannot be enough for you to just simply settle for others not to know. You must fear God. You know, really here, Jesus is alluding to something, even though the word's not said here, he's talking here in the, as we move forward here, that there's going to be an apocalypse, right? Look what he says here in verse three. What we often think of it. We like apocalyptic movies and, you know, we, we've seen a lot of them over the years. Hollywood makes them all the time. Jesus here's telling you what's going to happen in the end. This is not, you know, planet of the apes. This is legitimately what will happen at the end of your life. He says here, uh, there will be, the word apocalypse simply means an unveiling. At the end of your life, there will be an unveiling. What the Bible tells us here, that there is a judgment is coming and Jesus will be unveiled, but not just Jesus, but all of us and all of our works will be unveiled and hypocrisy will be seen for what it truly is. It is worthless to live the life of a hypocrite. It is pointless because in the end, the mask will come off and all will see for what it truly is. Um, you know, if I were to tell you that the past week we have planted in your compute, computer, in your phone, we have tracked you, we have every text, phone call, email, 
all content you viewed on your phone and your computer and your tablet, and we're going to put it all right here on the screen this morning, and we're going to run it for a week so that everybody can see everything you've done. What would it be like? Right? What would they see? So this morning, the antidote here to valuing the wrong thing and living behind a mask is living a life of integrity and consistency. What's integrity? It's being the same person whether people are around and looking or not. And if we're going to be a church to thrive in the future, we have to be a people of integrity. Second thing here, Jesus shifts here as we move down into verse 4. He begins talking about another attitude in action, and that's fear. Uh, I don't know if many of you remember back in the 90s, or maybe even 80s, 90s, there was a clothing line called No Fear. Do you all remember those No Fear t-shirts? Uh, like, Really, what we're going to see emerge from this text, uh, everyone fears something. And it is really foolish to try to live a life where there's no fear at all. Uh, you will either fear God in this text, uh, Jesus will point us here, or you will fear man. He says here, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body. Don't, don't fear fellow man who may be able to shoot you, kill you, or whatever. Uh, but after that, they can do nothing. He says here, but fear who? Fear the one who can kill and cast into hell. Fear him. Uh, you know, as we look at this closely here, we understand that fearless living is foolish living. And to think that you are fear nothing or no one, uh, you know, you're going to fear something. You're either going to fear man or you're going to fear God. There's going to be one of the two. Jesus here uh, didn't fear anyone or anybody. He did not back down from the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders of his day because he feared God. It's crazy to be totally fearless. That's something that that I think people that have lost their minds say. I fear nothing. You, you fear something. You fear something. You know, some people have even said Christians shouldn't talk in terms of fearing God because it's offensive to unbelievers. I've heard people try to make this argument. And while it may sound strange at times... Um, I don't think it's that foreign of a concept. I, I don't watch this series, but I've seen previews for it on, I think, Amazon or different things like that. There's a show that HBO made, and I'm not recommending it, but it's called True Blood. So in the title, it says blood. You know, I've heard Christians say, well, we shouldn't talk about Jesus' blood because it offends unbelievers. Well, you know, you really think that HBO executives are sitting up in their uh, suites and saying, you know, I don't really think we should call this show True Blood because it's going to offend people, Right. Only Christians are silly enough to think that, right? It's just when we talk about the blood of Christ or we talk about the fear of God, we need to be clear what we mean, right? And so if we're, Jesus is calling us here to fear the Lord, what does He mean? I think what He means is to fear God is to give Him the love and respect that is correct, right? How many of you had wonderful fathers growing up? Raise your hand if God blessed you with a wonderful father, right? And those of you who maybe didn't have that chance or that blessing, God is your father no matter what. So you get a good father if you come to Christ. How many of you loved your father dearly? Raise your hand if you loved your father. All right, good. Now, how many of you also feared your father? Raise your hand. My hand's up, right? It is possible that you can love someone dearly and still fear them at the same time. You know, it's interesting to me as I pastor and as I do counseling, here's one thing that I've observed. Uh, this is true of boys in particular. Boys get to a certain age, 14, 15 years old. They don't want to be mothered by their mom anymore. 
They don't want to, you know, they don't want her to fuss over their outfit or lick her finger and knock that smudge off her face. They don't want her to do any of that anymore. But they want their dads to be their dads forever, right? Perpetually. Well, that's true of those young men until they get married to their wife and then they want their wives to be their mothers, right? <laughs> Some of you will get that later. Anyway, and it's really a sad day for men in particular when your dad gets to the point and you switch roles and you become the one who is domineering or the caretaker and he becomes the one who has to be watched after. It's hard. Well, in a similar fashion here, though, what we're seeing here is a love that is respected. You know, when I think about my dad, he instilled in me a, a work ethic to work hard and always. I don't know anybody in my life that works as hard as my father. We always like to put superlatives with our dads. Hardest working, most dependent, whatever it is you fill in the blank. But he also loves us, but we need our dads to establish boundaries, right? You know, when I heard, when I would come home and he'd say, son, come in here, we need to have a talk. I knew what was coming, Right. He was drawing the boundaries and making it clear. Um, you know, and, and then when we think about biblically examples of when this term fear God is used, I think there's about 27 different examples. If you're to think of the Bible kind of chronologically, one of the first places that we see it used is when Abraham lies about his wife Sarah. He's coming into a town here with Abimelech as the king. He, he gives this big harem and he knows Sarah's beautiful. He knows this king's going to want to take her into the harem. He fears that he'll be killed by him and he takes him in and God gives the king a dream says, if you touch Sarah, you're going to be in big trouble here. So he returns him and said, why did you lie about this? What is Abraham's reply? He said, well, when I came here, what I saw among these people is they do not fear God. So I was afraid and I lied. But it's interesting to me, though, that the second time you see the word fear of God is when Abraham offers Isaac. And God tells Abraham to offer Isaac. He takes him out uh, to the mountain there and draws the knife and is about to do the deed. And then, that, and then there's a, a ram caught in the thicket and Abraham uses it. And the Bible tells us that he, for the first time, the second time it's used here, truly fears God. It's interesting and telling to me that Abraham's accusation and really what could be said is his excuse for lying that those people didn't fear God. God brings him to a point where Abraham has to place his own son on the altar and demonstrate that he fears God alone more than anything else. More than his wife, more than his son, more than the people that he leads. He must fear God above all. Psalm 34:11 says, "Children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord." Uh, in verse in, in Psalm 110, verse 10, all those who practice righteousness have a good understanding. Fear God. Proverbs 1:7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1:29, they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 2:5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord uh, when you find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 8:13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Uh, Proverbs 9:10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One. Proverbs 10:27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 
14.26, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Uh, Proverbs 14.27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that the one may turn away from the snares of death. Let me get through. The, I mean, I could just keep going here all through the Proverbs, but you can see the theme emerging. Even in the prophets, Isaiah 11.2, The Spirit of the Lord here, speaking of the Messiah, Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and what's it say, church? Fear of the Lord. Acts 9.31, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. So if Grace Baptist Church is to thrive for the next 78 years, we must fear God as a church family and we must fear God as individuals. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade others to see the fear of the Lord. It is, runs deep throughout Scripture, this theme of fearing God. So the antidote here to fearing man and demonstrating wrong relations with man is, is to trust in God. Why do I say trust in God? Well, look at the next verse here, right? Are not five sparrows sold for pennies? And he goes on to demonstrate even the number of hairs of your head, the Lord numbered. So it's, it's interesting here, right? Because he says, uh, don't fear man, fear God. And then he gives this comforting text here about not fearing. You know, I don't, <laughs> here's the reality we're seeing here. Why can you trust God? He is sovereign over everything. He knows all things. He knows things about you you don't even know. How many of you all know the numbers of your hair on your head and are not bald, right? <laughs> Very few of you, right? In a similar fashion, God knows the number of hairs on our head. If He cares for the most common bird in flight when it falls to the ground dead, how much more does He care for those made in His image that He sent His Son to die for? trust God is really the other side of that coin of fearing God, isn't it? Fearing God and trusting God are one and the same on the coin. So we have got to fear God. We have got to trust God as well. Jesus here brings in here about loving and fearing God next to, uh, and it comes, but, and it comes right into this, uh, this uh, next section where he is instructing and he is teaching us here in verses 8 through 12 about not be, not denying and having the right testimony, right? So the first part here, we got to have the right audience, the audience of one, and that is God himself. Second part here, we got to have the right fear, and that's fearing God. Third thing here we're going to see now, we have to have the right testimony. The right testimony, verses 8 through 12 here. Jesus here brings in, if you trust the Lord and fear God, you will have no reason to deny who God is or who Jesus Christ is in your life. So he warns us here against blasphemy. And in the next part here, verses 8 through 12, he's going to give us a little bit of instruction. He goes into this business here about not denying Christ, not denying Jesus Christ. If you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before the Son of Man, we, or I will deny you before angels. Apparently this is some kind of a, of a courtroom setting that he is pointing to and telling us about here. 
It is a very straightforward and very easy text to understand. If you deny me here before your fellow man out of fear of man, I will deny you when you get to heaven at the throne in the, at the great white throne in the judgment. It is as simple as that, right? Jesus warns us that at the end of time, there will be people who cry out, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do this? But at some point, they've denied Christ, right? And then there's this interesting thing that happens here. This interesting verse in, in verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who's blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So what does this mean? Does this mean that like if you deny Jesus, but you're still affirming the Holy Spirit that you're in good shape, that like, you know, Peter denied Jesus at the crucifixion. So, you know, uh, as long as he affirms the Holy Spirit, he's okay. Well, <clears throat> I think that you know, Jesus here refers to the Holy Spirit uh, as a helper that will come, who will be a very intimate with us on a daily basis. Um, Jesus cares deeply about those uh, that he has ministered to and that he has died for here. He's really talking here about the unforgivable sin. You know, really in Christianity, there's only one unforgivable sin. I was talking to recently somebody who was lost and they were trying to make up their mind about what faith they wanted to follow. They said, well, I don't like Judaism because I don't like all the guilt. I find Christianity very appealing because of forgiveness and love. Well, in a similar fashion here, there is one sin that's not forgivable, right? And Jesus names it right here. What's it say it is? Blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Um, I like to listen to podcasts. There's one podcast I really like a lot. I, I like it for two reasons, uh, because I, he's one of my favorite secular authors. His name's Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. And he has a podcast called Revisionist History. And I think he has some great episodes. When I'm driving a long ways, I will listen to Malcolm Gladwell if everybody in the car is sleeping in my family, and, and uh, he will take me on different journeys and trips. And there was a story that I found fascinating. He shared about this, uh, this man who was a minister in the Mennonite church, and he was 98 years old, been a minister in the Mennonite church his whole life. And his son became open about his homosexuality, and he wanted his dad to marry them. Now, just to be clear, Mennonites and Southern Baptists are theologically kind of first cousins. So, you know, their, their theology is very similar to ours. Uh, there might be some difference in contextualization on in issues like that, but basically they're very similar. And so he writes, this pastor, Christopher Wagner, he writes this open letter. And it's a very kind, almost syrupy sweet letter where he says, you know, I, I'm going to love my son. I, I'm going to go ahead and marry him and his homosexual partner. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And then, of course, the, the Mennonite church pulls his ordination you know, uh, kind of bars him, you know, from, from that denomination. And, and how do you think Malcolm Gladwell reacts to that, right? You know, the world wants us to give them a certain message. The world and the pressure that it gives us, they're fine with Jesus who forgives and loves. They're fine with uh, the Jesus who calls down religious leaders even. But I, I think they really struggle with Jesus who affirms the sexual ethic of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that marriage is between one man and one woman, right? Jesus affirms that. And they don't want that part of him. And, and you know, 
Did Malcolm Gladwell take the position as a secularist human that, you know, good, good job, Mennonite Church, for barring this man? And a man who had turned on the faith that he had defended and, and advocated for his whole life? Or was he just saying, you know, why can't we all be more like Chester Wagner? Why can't you people in your churches just find a way to be in agreement with us on this and, and sing your little songs in your church and, and, and just affirm this and let everybody be happy and do what they want to do? You know, and what do we hear all the time? A lot of times, church, I hear people on the other side that will say this to us. They'll say, you know, you're just on the wrong side of history on this one. Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. I'm sure Noah, every day he was building the ark, people walked by and said, Noah, you're on the wrong side of history on this issue. It's never rained here. It never will rain. You're crazy for building a boat, right? Anybody who stands with what God has said and what he's decreed in his holy word because it will endure forever is always in the majority. And they will be till the end. You see, once we give the culture what they demand, we give them in a testimony. Do you think they want anything to do with us after that? Let's just take a walking tour of churches in Elizabethan and in Johnson City of churches that have been swallowed up by culture. And you will see churches that are empty every Sunday. Once you give in to the wrong testimony and give the world the testimony they want to hear instead of the gospel, they don't need you anymore because you don't have anything unique to give them. Right? So, Grace, we must continue with the right testimony, giving and preaching Jesus Christ. And back to this last thing here, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what it means. I think it means not just to simply speak against the Holy Spirit. I think that it is, it is a point in the life of a believer or of an unbeliever where they turn the Holy Spirit away and they just object to him. And that's it. Let me give you a, let's look to the past for a help here on the understanding what's meant by this. This is from Hervin uh, Binnock from eight, he was alive from 1854 to 1921. I'm so glad God gave minds like this to help us understand tough things like this. Here's what he said. This is a quote. He writes about this in this passage. He said, um, the unforgivable sin is not doubting or simply denying the truth. It is rather a denial which goes against the conviction of the intellect, against the enlightenment of the conscience, against the dictates of the heart. It is a conscience willfully and intentionally impeded to the influence and the work of Satan, and that is certainly recognizing it as God's work instead of Satan's. It is a willful declaration that the Holy Spirit is the spirit from the abyss, and that truth is a lie, and that Christ is Satan himself. For this reason, the sin is unforgivable. Although God's grace is not too small and too powerless for it, yet the kingdom of sin are laws and ordinance placed there by God and maintained by Him." Basically, if I could summarize what he is saying, he's saying this, by God's decree, the unforgivable sin is this. It is a seared conscience and a final rejection that the Holy Spirit will not rule me or my life. That's what it is. Inevitably, after I preach a text like this, I have precious saints that come up to me and say, Pastor, I'm concerned that I have committed the unforgivable sin. I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to which my reply is always the same. The fact that you're concerned with that indicates that you have not done that. Because people who have been guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit do not care that they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. 
They don't care. So we want to have the right testimony. We want to have a testimony. I'll hear people say things to me like, well, if God is a God who allows children to suffer, He wants to send me to hell, then let Him do it. Friend, you don't know what you're saying. You don't understand what you're saying. I shudder when I hear statements like that. And listen, I understand. We've got a boy right now on my football team. He's 10 years old, and they just found two tumors, not one, two tumors on his brain. We have no idea what the outcome is going to be in that situation, but we're praying for little Levi, praying that God will heal him. So we have to have the right audience. We have to have um, the right testimony. And we have to have here in these passages... Uh, the right testimony affirming who Christ is. Then Jesus moves on here into this last section of Scripture. And in this last section, what we're going to see here is um, Jesus giving us the last value that we're going to look at this morning, something that is needed, something that I've seen many churches, uh, and particularly in revitalization, have struggled with. And that is, He tells this parable of a man who had plenty, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but churches usually don't die because they run out of money. Uh, usually churches that die, and I see Dino's there for the North American Mission Board. Dino, would you agree with this statement? Many churches that die, die with money in the bank. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct, isn't it? Churches that have money in the bank, sometimes we are tempted to think because there's money in the bank, we're in good shape. But Jesus here warns us here about not trusting the right things, right? Not putting your complete trust in the right things. Um, he gives this parable of this man who, who harvested plentifully. He tore down his barns and, and built new ones. What he's really saying here is don't live life with the wrong confidence in verses 13 through 21. This man trusted in earthly treasures and things that he could see. Churches are tempted to do the same things. We're tempted to trust in the numbers on Sunday morning. I'm, I'm in the same boat. We're tempted to trust in the bank account statements. We're tempted to trust in the number of baptisms. But the things that we should have confidence in are not the things that are seen, but the things that are what? Unseen, right? We should have confidence in the Word of God and that God is faithful to us no matter what is happening in those numbers. So, you know, <laughs> so many times people think if I just make it to this amount or I just do this or I just do that, I'll be fine. I, I want to tell you something. At the end of your life, you're going to end up in a room. And, and it's if you live long enough, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up in a room, and there's going to be, you know, 14 by 14 room with a dresser, a few of your clothes in it, and some pictures on a wall. And I know because I'm in that room all the time. And if you're trusting and thinking that your financial blessings or what's going to get you there, or if this church just has this amount of money in the bank, we're going to be fine, you are sadly mistaken. We must take this life, we must take the earthly investments that we have, and we must be faithful to great commission and great commandments. <clears throat> we can't have confidence in that. We can't assess what, how well we're doing based on numbers alone that we can see. And the antidote to that, I think, is we must assess things from an eternal perspective. 
We have a different perspective than our cult, than our counterparts around us. So this morning, as we think about grace surviving and thriving into the future, we should think about four things from this text. We should walk away with four things. First is this, we don't live for the wrong audience. We live lives of integrity. Second is, we don't live with the wrong fear, that love and respect for God. We trust in God. Third thing is this, we don't, we don't live with the wrong testimony, but instead, <laughs> we speak the truth about God and honor who Christ is. The antidote is that we continue to affirm who Jesus Christ is as He has presented Himself in the New Testament. And the, third, the fourth thing is this, we do not live with the wrong confidence. But instead, we are to assess things from an eternal perspective, not from the temporal and the numbers game. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we bow before you here today, no doubt this message is for those who have trusted you or claim to have trusted you. Lord, I just pray that if you see fit, that you will continue to bless our ministry and our work here, not because we are better than our neighbors that are not here this morning, not because we're more glamorous or, or even at times we may think ourselves in better condition other than the fact that you have saved us. But Lord, help us to do these things by the means of the Holy Spirit, God. Help us to remain faithful to your testimony, God. Help us to, to live for the audience of one and not for the audience of many, God. Help us to, to assess things as you assess things. Lord, if there's anyone here that's far from you, that have been living with the wrong fear or the wrong audience or the wrong confidence, Lord, I pray that you will draw them to yourself today, that you will reach down and you will touch them, you will save them, God. Help them this morning, Lord. Help us at an individual level and collectively as a church to value the things that truly matter. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.